Have you ever had someone try to convince you that a substitute is just as good as the real thing? It tastes just like real bacon. Seriously, I don't even miss eating ice cream anymore. I cannot believe that it's not butter. For a variety of what I'm sure are very good reasons, we are constantly trying to talk ourselves into substitutes. And you know what? Some of these substitutes are getting really close to perfect. But there is nothing quite like the real thing, and I think deep down we know it. This week, we continue our look at a series of kings that, despite their best intentions, just don't quite measure up to the real thing. So if you would, uh, pray with me as we get started. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And as we think on these things, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear you. Amen. So good morning. Whether you are watching uh, on the live stream, listening on the podcast, or you're here in person, we are really glad that you could join us. My name is Donnie Epp, and uh, I am a member of the teaching team, and that's a group that meets weekly to discuss and deliver our message for the week. And our goal is not only to inspire a more diverse exploration of Scripture, but also to ensure that we're tracking as we get up here to, to share. And even with this, I want to add a little bit of a disclaimer and a challenge to each of you to question everything that I say against your own experience, your own study, and especially against Scripture. We've been asking ourselves in this study, where is the grace? And I'm very grateful that there is grace as I get up here to share with you what I'm seeing in this Scripture. So um, we'll put up a quick slide here, and this is a really busy slide, but I wanted to just highlight. Uh, We are continuing our progression through the narrative lectionary. The narrative lectionary is a four-year cycle of readings that follow the sweep of of the biblical story from creation through the early church. And we're looking at vignettes of Scripture, and they're intended to draw out themes in the Bible. But this week, as we drop into 2 Kings, which is itself a series of vignettes, we're really looking at a highlight of highlights. And I just want to make that point because I'm going to try to draw out some context, but recognize that we are are really looking at a very small piece of a a broad swath of history. And so over the last four weeks, we looked at King David. Uh, We looked at the the division of the kingdom with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We saw Elijah call down fire on the altar on Mount Carmel. And then um, last week we talked a little bit, well, we talked about um, Hosea and, and some of these prayers as well. So you'll see that we've talked a little bit about uh, the right side of this column, and now we're hopping over and talking about Josiah in the southern kingdom. So we're looking at the period of kings, and that's what you see up here. Uh, and so let's dig into the text, and uh, as we do that, uh, we'll pause along the way to explore some context. Uh, and as we do this, I mentioned to the team earlier, if you, actually, I'm going to apologize to two people on the front end of this. If you are a physicist, um, you'll find out why later. Um, you're going to be very disappointed with me. Uh, and if you're a linguist, I apologize in advance because there are some names in this text that are a real doozy. Um, so, so we'll see how this goes. All right, let's, let's start reading. We are in 2 Kings 22, and uh, we're starting in verse 1. So Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah from Bozkath. He did what the Lord approved of and followed in his ancestor David's footsteps. He did not deviate to the right or to the left. So we get just a few verses in here, and I already have a bunch of questions. 
Who is Josiah? Why is Judah appointing an eight-year-old to the throne? And why isn't he following in his father's footsteps? It says he followed in David's footsteps. Why is he doing that? So let's look a little bit at how we got here. And this illustration is actually in uh, the learning guide. Um, I didn't find, I mean, I didn't find this. It was in the learning guide. I pulled it forward and they give you a progression through the history. It's really a nice resource, but I thought I'd throw this up here as we explain how we got to here. So almost 400 years earlier, the people of Israel were begging for a king and God warned them that it wouldn't be as good as the real thing, but they insisted. So he gave them a king. And so you have Saul who becomes king, and then you have David, and then you have Solomon. And after just three kings, the nation of Israel can't hold it together anymore, so they split up. And Jod talked about this a little bit back in October. So God brings along prophets to declare his truth and speak on his behalf during this time. The kingdom of Israel cycles through a series of kings and continually fails to submit to God, eventually falling to Assyria. So you see that little top portion. Uh, and Assyria was kind of the power of the time, and so it wasn't really all that surprising. Um, they were in close proximity uh, that that's who the, they would be taken over by. So Judah, the southern kingdom, is heading down the same path. In fact, Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, you see that middle portion there. Manasseh was a bad dude. He was arguably the most evil king in Israel's history. So earlier in Kings, the Bible describes Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, in this way. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He sacrificed his children, his own children, in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists, and he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Bad dude. Manasseh is allowed to rule for 55 years. And there's a piece that we don't get in 2 Kings. It's actually mentioned um, in Chronicles. At the very end of his life, Manasseh actually tries to repent, and he does repent. But it seems to be too late to have any impact on the nation of Israel. And so his son, Amon, uh, this is Josiah's dad, succeeds him. So Amon was 22 years old, um, and he was also a bad dude. So he's 22, takes the throne, and two years later, his own people conspire and kill him, and they put Josiah on the throne. So let me recap. If you're Josiah, your grandfather is a Hitler-style character whose legacy looms large. You're six years old when he dies. Your dad becomes king, but two years later, his own people kill him, and they put you on the throne. And so we bring up Joshua earlier, and we say, what would you do if you were king? And this is the situation that Josiah has dropped into. So he's got his plate full. And also, I want to make a note. Did, did everyone hear what Joshua said? I, I checked with his parents. They did not set him up for this. He asked, what would you do if you were king of GKG? And he said, I would make sure that everybody follows Jesus. So really, I think we're done here for the day after that. Um, but we are going to continue to read Josiah's story. So let's keep going. In the 18th year, so Josiah is 26 years old at this point. In the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, the king sent the scribe Shapen, son of Azalea, son of Meshalem, to the Lord's temple with these orders. Go up to Hilkiah the priest and have him melt down the silver that has been brought by the people to the Lord's temple and has been collected by the guards at the door. Have them handed over to the construction form and assigned to the Lord's temple. They, in turn, should pay the temple workers to repair it, including craftsmen, builders, masons, 
and should buy wood and chiseled stone for the repair work. Do not audit the foremen who disperse the silver because they are honest. So at this point, it would seem like the people who were grooming Josiah, we have an eight-year-old get on the throne. He doesn't just do all that by himself, right? He's got people around him who are helping him. And so those people seem to have done a pretty good job because at 26, Josiah has a pretty good handle on what to do. He commissions the renovation of the temple that his grandfather and his father allowed to fall into disrepair. And so Shapin, his guy, goes to oversee these renovations. So here's what happens when he gets there. Shapin comes to the temple, and Hilkiah the priest tells Shapin the scribe, I found the law scroll in the Lord's temple. That's kind of weird that you would have the high priest. That's like going to a church and the pastor being like, hey, I found this Bible in the church. Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shapin, and he read it. Shapen the scribe went to the king and reported, Your servants melted down the silver in the temple and handed it over to the construction foreman assigned to the Lord's temple. Then Shapen the scribe told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. Shapen read it out loud before the king. So Josiah orders temple renovations, and they find the scripture. And now, to their credit, these were large scrolls. These wasn't, it wasn't like as mobile and portable as our Bibles. Um, but they, they find the scripture that's been lost because they just have not been paying attention to the word of the Lord. And we think that this was probably the Pentateuch, the first five books of the scripture, in particular Deuteronomy that they find, which is the law of kings. Shapin completely buries the lead. He comes back and gives him this update on all the stuff that, that they were doing. And then he says, oh yeah, oh yeah. Also, we found this scroll. And so it would seem that at this moment, Josiah actually hears the written word of the Lord for the first time. So let's see what he does with that. When the king, when Josiah heard the words of the law scroll, he tore his clothes. The king ordered Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shapen, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shapen the scribe, and Asiah the king's servant, go and seek an oracle from the Lord for me and the people. For all Judah, find out about the words of this scroll that have been discovered. For the Lord's fury has been ignited against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this scroll by doing all that it instructs us to do. So here's the scripture and immediately instructs them to go find someone who can tell them what this is all about. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shapen, and Asiah went to Huldah. You guys liking these names yet? went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, the supervisor of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the Mishnah district. They stated their business, and she said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. So they go and find Huldah. She's a prophetess. So we see this another example of a remnant. So even though the people had completely gone away from God, we see a remnant who is preserving the truth of God, And Huldah seems to be a part of this as well, and she has credibility in the kingdom, and she has the authority to speak on behalf of God. So she says, say this to the man who sent you to me, which, by the way, is the king. This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and its residents, the details of which are recorded in the scroll which the king of Judah has read. This will happen because they have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to other gods, angering me with all the idols they have made. My anger will ignite against this place, and it will not be extinguished. Say this to the king of Judah, who sent you to seek an oracle from the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says concerning the words that you have heard. Josiah, 
you displayed a sensitive spirit and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I intended to make this place and its residents into an appalling example of an accursed people. You tore your clothes and you wept before me and I have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will allow you to die and be buried in peace. You will not have to witness all the disaster I will bring on this place. So all these guys go back and report to the king. So Josiah encounters God's word, and he is deeply moved by what he learns. And we see this unique character introduced here, Huldah. She clearly has clout in the kingdom, speaks on behalf of God. And her tone is a little dismissive. She says, you know, say this to the guy who sent you to me. Destruction is inevitable for your kingdom. But because you showed a sensitive spirit and humility, I'm going to put a pause on the natural consequences of your actions, at least while you're king. So Josiah, with this word from God and the written law recovered, takes action to reform the nation of Israel. So here's our last section of Scripture. The king summoned all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the Lord's temple, accompanied by all the people of Judah, all the residents of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets. All of the people were there, from the youngest to the oldest. He read aloud all the words of the scroll of the covenant that had been discovered in the Lord's temple. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant before the Lord, agreeing to follow the Lord and obey his commandments, laws, and rules with all his heart and being by carrying out the terms of this covenant recorded on this scroll. And all the people agreed to keep that covenant. So he recovers the scripture, he repents, and he commits the nation back to God's covenant. But what do we take from this? It's an incredible story. And so some, part of me just wants to kind of let it lie, uh, but that's not how we do church. So uh, a few things that I want to take away from this. So in 1687, Sir Isaac Newton published the Principia, which, among other things, introduces three laws of motion. And if you took physics in high school, uh, you probably are familiar with these. And so as a way of, of drawing out some observations about today's text, what I'd like to propose are three theories of spiritual motion. So first slide here. Newton's first law of motion says that an object in motion tends to stay in motion and an object at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted on by an outside force. So one of the things that I kind of have stuck in my craw about this story is that Josiah repents and God basically says, it doesn't matter, I'm still going to destroy the people. If they repent, shouldn't they be saved? Isn't that the God that we know and serve? So there's a mystery here that I don't fully understand, but I do think that there is something to the spiritual inertia of the people of Israel. Imagine the Titanic careening towards the iceberg and the amount of inertia that was taking place in that moment. So I mentioned earlier that Josiah's grandfather Manasseh turned back to God at the end of his life. The scripture says that he actually got rid of the foreign gods. He removed the image from the temple of the Lord. He restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And he told Judah, he told the nation to serve the Lord God of Israel. But that la this last verse, is, the wording is very interesting. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So they agreed to follow the Lord their God, but they still weren't doing it right. And we don't see any mention that they actually changed their hearts. They basically just did what the king told them to do. 
So he actually begins this work, but the people couldn't turn as fast. And so it's, it's equivalent to trying to turn around a tugboat or a small sailboat and turn the Titanic. Manasseh wasn't enough, but neither was Josiah. So when Josiah renews the covenant, I want to pay close attention to the wording at the end of that piece of scripture. So it says that the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant before the Lord, agreeing to follow the Lord and obey his commandments and laws with all his heart and being and carrying out the terms of the covenant recorded in the scroll. And all of the people agreed to keep the covenant. So the people agree, okay, you are the guy who makes the laws. We're going to follow the laws. In other parts of Scripture where we see a true repentance on the part of the nation, you see different language. It says something like, and the people turned their hearts to God, or they, the people repented. We don't see that here. All we see is that, he agreed, that we agree to keep the covenant. Now, I'm projecting a little bit here because it doesn't say that they didn't repent, and it doesn't say that they did. So there's really not enough information here for me to truly make this conclusion. But the omission of that type of language, I think, is interesting. So Josiah imposes reform. This is kind of a martial law by decree of the king. So when God tells Josiah through the prophetess, my anger will ignite against this place and it will not be extinguished, he's basically saying that the nation of Israel's inertia towards evil is taking them towards disaster. They are the Titanic headed for the iceberg. This giant ship is careening towards destruction, and a little tugboat is not going to change its path. But he does put a pause on it during Josiah's reign. So this brings us to the next law of motion. Josiah is not enough. So the second, the second law of motion says that force equals mass times acceleration. So stay with me here because this gets, this gets a little crunchy. Basically, what this is saying is that the bigger, and, I'm, and I'm, using, I'm, I'm imposing my meaning on this. This is why I apologized to physicists earlier. Basically, the bigger something is and the faster it's moving, the more force you need to change its trajectory. And so you see this guy straining to pull this airplane. If that same guy was trying to pull something much smaller, it would move much more quickly. So in this equation, look at F as King Josiah or as a king, right? The force as the king and the mass as the people. And acceleration is their disposition towards God or towards evil. Which one? So with that in mind, we look at Josiah and it's not in our selection for this week, but 2 Kings describes Josiah as one of, if not the greatest king in history. It says, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his strength, in accordance with the law of Moses. So if we look at this guy as Josiah, he's the biggest, baddest, strong man, dude, in terms of kingdom reality, and he is straining to pull the people of Israel and to say, let's do what God says. He ignored the ways of his fathers, and he had to look all the way back to David for a role model. And he was almost perfect in his disposition toward God. He led a covenant renewal with all of his strength, and there was no other king like him. And still, he wasn't enough. He didn't have enough force to move it. So how often do we look for the capital F in our own lives and in our own communities? We look to our own strength. We look to science, Netflix documentaries, celebrities, friends, music, even politicians. 
to solve what's broken in the world. And if you think about our track record as a society, we have failed pretty miserably at that. I think the last couple of years make that painfully clear. There's no question that something is dreadfully wrong with the world. So where do we find the F, the force to reverse our acceleration towards self-destruction? We put ourselves on this path. God promises King David that a messianic king will come from his line, and the books of First and Second Kings are a record of leaders who fail to live up to this promise. And it all points to one thing, Jesus. It's all through Scripture. So let's look at Colossians 1 uh, briefly, and I'll just read this to you. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, your inertia was taking you away from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Jesus is the only force that can interrupt humanity's inertia towards destruction. He is the king with a capital K, and Josiah in all of his greatness can't step up to it. So what do we do with this? I like the words of Jewish novelist Shalom Ash when he says, Jesus Christ to me is the outstanding personality of all time, all history, both as son of God and son of man. Everything he ever said or did has value for us today, and that is something you can say of no other man, dead or alive. There is no easy middle ground to stroll upon. You either accept Jesus or you reject him. So this brings us to our final law of motion. For every action, there is a reaction. When we encounter God and his word, it demands a response. You cannot have a true encounter with him and his word and not change. It is a fork in the road, and you have to pick one. When Josiah finds the scripture in the temple and he hears the words of the law scroll, he tears his clothes. Josiah encounters the real king and chooses to lead an about face for the nation of Judah. So Josiah gets it. This is repentance. And I realize that whenever we insert these church words, um, I always want to take some time to draw it out. We talked about it in the, in the teaching team this week. Repentance is not just saying sorry for all of the crap that we've done. 
It is a 180 degree realignment of our affections. We are driving in the wrong direction and now we are driving in the right direction and we are moving towards God. It is a realignment of our affections from false Jesus to Jesus Almighty King. It is living intentionally with inertia towards freedom, towards redemption, towards sanctification. So I want to take a quick sidebar here to highlight that Josiah's encounter with God happened through the Word of God, through Scripture. He had clearly been taught the right way by this remnant, right? He knew generally what to do. But that, that close-tearing moment that he has is a result of him reading the Scripture. The Bible says of itself that it is breathed out by God and that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training. It also says that it is living and active, that it is sharp, and that it helps us discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We say that it's all about Jesus, and that is true, but I'll quote Martin Luther when he said that the Bible is the cradle in which Christ is laid. Do we know the Bible? Do we acknowledge it? Are we biblically literate? Are we raising our children to be biblically literate? Are we reading Scripture and letting it read us back? I think if we genuinely consider this question, we might realize we have a lot of work to do. It may also be something else, because I like Kierkegaard when he says, the Bible is actually very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. The Word of God will transform us, and it demands a response. So what is our response to the story of Josiah? So I'd like to encourage you with a few final thoughts. An object in motion tends to stay in motion, and if it's at rest, it tends to stay at rest. I think for each of us, we have to check where we're at. Where is our inertia taking us? What is the path that we are on? Where is your inertia taking you? Put your nose in the Bible every day. It is our spiritual food. Use it as a tool to daily realign your affections. Apply yourself wholly to the Scriptures and apply the Scriptures wholly to yourself. And in doing that, be aware of fake Jesus. The allure of substitutes is very real. It is strong. And sometimes it's even motivated by things that are righteous. So if the worship team would like to come up, I'll close it down. We have been asking... Where is the grace? God's inertia is constantly towards our restoration, renewal, and reconciliation to him. Even in judgment, he is working to reconcile all things to himself. He is going to do what he promises, and he gives us Jesus. We're approaching the Advent season and Christmas where we celebrate Jesus' birth. And so let's celebrate that in light of what we see here. And remember that Jesus is it. He is everything. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is for everyone. He is for the rich. He is for the poor. And we are all welcome. He is the force that picks us up and reconciles all things to himself.